But when it really came time to step up and do what was needed to keep this hospital open, whether it was to make us part of a larger system, whether it was to give us ongoing funding, uh, to subsidize us, to, to continue to serve this population, at the end of the day, everybody failed. Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today I'm joined by Eric Zell, a consultant and strategist in Richmond, California. Today's episode is a story about a hospital across the bay from one of the wealthiest neighborhoods on the planet, and why, despite all that money, the hospital couldn't afford to stay open. We're going to have a guest who will tell us about his heroic effort to keep the hospital open, and why that effort and that story has chilling lessons for all of us, especially as Americans become increasingly sick and die from COVID. Our guest is Eric Zell. He's a consultant, former political staffer, and most recently an elected member of the West Contra Costa Healthcare District Board of Directors, where he oversaw and then tried to save Brookside Hospital. It's also known as Doctors Medical Center. Brookside was started by Eric's father and served those in the East Bay area who couldn't go, you know, get medical care elsewhere. But though the story of the closure of Doctors Medical Center is an important one, as you listen, I'd also invite you to think about your community. Are there public hospitals near your neighborhood? Who do they serve? Are, are these the same people you rely on today as, quote, essential workers? And what would happen if this hospital in your neighborhood suddenly closed its doors? Where would these essential workers go for essential health care? Let's listen to Eric's story and find out what he has to say. Well, listen, Eric, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're really, really excited to have you um, on the podcast and to hear your story of working with Doctors Medical Center and trying to save it. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Very much appreciate it. Eric, maybe to start, you can talk a little bit about the history of your involvement with with DMC and and maybe what D, well maybe first you can tell us what DMC is um and then we can start talking a little bit about the history of your involvement maybe going back to your your parents sure sure i know very much appreciate the uh, opportunity um to talk about this uh this hospital and and its history in in the bay area um so Doctors Medical Center actually start, started um, in 1948. It was formed by the voters of the western part of Contra Costa County in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, it was actually created by community leaders who recognized the need for a full-service 
public hospital to serve a very much growing uh, population as a result of Richmond being the center of the um, war effort uh, with the Kaiser shipyards. And mm-hmm. Richmond had gone from a community of 20,000 to a community of 120,000 just in the course of the mid-40s. And as a result, with the, that growth in population, there was a need for a local hospital. And it was really the community coming together and forming the hospital district by putting a measure on the ballot, of which my father was one of those community business leaders that actually helped form the the hospital district. And it passed in 1948, and then the hospital was built and opened as Brookside Hospital in 1954, which was, in fact, the year I was born. I was not born at Brookside Hospital, but uh, it corresponds with the year I was born. And, um, and that hospital um, was really, uh, in the full sense of the, the term, was a true community hospital. It served, it was a 190-bed hospital. It had a relatively large emergency room. It had pediatric and obstetric care. It had a cancer center. It had a burn center. It uh, was really a full-service, public, nonprofit community hospital. And uh, at the time, and uh, for much of its existence, it really served the entire cross-section of this community, uh, which was a population at that time of perhaps, Richmond itself was about 120,000, but the hospital served the entire western part of the county. So it was really closer to 200,000 people um, in the um, catchment area of the hospital. And whether you were the wealthiest person in the community or the poorest person in the community, you went to Brookside Hospital. Um, And uh, regardless of race, and and this area of the Bay Area is very racially diverse, uh, Richmond, uh, mm-hmm. at that time was probably 60% African-American, um, but it served the entire breadth of the commercial, of the uh, community, both, uh, both in terms of, uh, economic class and in terms of race. And, uh, that was really the story of Brookside hospital. And my parents who came to this area, uh, in the late forties after the war, uh, from New York, uh, and settled in Richmond, uh, became and have always been very involved in the community. And so they took up the challenge of uh, not only helping this hospital get created, but also support it from its from its uh, beginning. So my father, they formed a, a foundation to, to raise money to support the hospital, and my father was the president of that foundation for many, many years. Uh, my mother... Uh, was a volunteer as a candy striper in that hospital for over 20 years. And my sister uh, started, she's a doctor, but started her medical career as a nurse in this hospital um, back in the uh, back in the 70s and, and the 80s. So my family's connection to this hospital is really from its creation. And it wasn't until uh, 2000, uh, seven, uh, that, uh, I got asked 
by a member of the County Board of Supervisors to sit on the elected board of the hospital district. I was, uh, in fact, appointed to that board in 2007 and fairly short time thereafter became the chair of the board. So I was very involved directly with the hospital from 2007 till it um, closed uh, in 2015. Tell me a little bit about your dad. You said your dad was involved in the hospital. You said he's a business, he was a businessman. What, what kind of work did he do and why did he feel it was important for him to start a foundation and raise funds to, to start a hospital like DMC or Brookside? Well, my father uh, ended up opening a furniture business in downtown Richmond that is still there to this day. Um, and uh, he was just the, both the type of personality and, um, and just had a commitment to community service that um, I think was really just innate, innate to the culture, innate to who they were as people. And they just got very involved in the community. Um, it was really as a local business person who just cared about the community and wanted to see it thrive and understood its needs and started to connect mm -hmm. to the other movers and shakers in the community. And, and that's really the basis by which um, he, he ended up getting involved. And from my youth, my parents were always involved in the community, whether it was this or raising money for cancer research or my mother's involvement with Hadassah. They, they just were always involved in the community. And it's just really a, a value and a culture that my whole family had and clearly has had, uh, you know, my entire life. So, so he, he got involved. He raised funds for the hospital. He was motivated to do this work, as was your mother. Uh, tell me a little bit about the hospital in the you know, 50s, 60s, and maybe 70s. Who was it serving? What was the patient mix? You know, what, what kind of services was it providing? Yeah, as I mentioned, it was really a full-service uh, community hospital. A, it was a public hospital, not a private nonprofit, as you typically would see, or a private for-profit. This was a publicly owned hospital. This was hospitals owned by the voters of the uh, area that it served. And it had a legally created district uh, that, uh, that it could, in fact, charge um, uh, taxes to the community and could uh, receive a portion of people's property taxes to support it. So it's truly a public hospital. Um, and it really, as I mentioned, provided a, a really broad range of, of, uh, of healthcare services, including a uh, obstetrics and pediatric Many, many, to this day, you will, you will hear many, many residents of Richmond talk about the fact they were born at Brookside Hospital. And even after the name changed, which wasn't until the 2000s, the people to this day still refer, still refer it as Brookside Hospital. Um, Doctors Medical Center uh, was, a, frankly, just a marketing uh, tool of one of the operators that was brought in to try to keep the hospital open. 
And you mentioned that uh, folks, you know, no matter what their background was in the early days, they would go to the hospital for medical care. So it was, it was right. a public hospital, but it wasn't just for those who had a hard time affording medical care. No, the, the president of the, the bank, um, the president of the local corporations uh, went to that hospital. It was known as being a high-quality hospital. It was known as <clears> – <throat> it was just – it was the place to go. It, there really weren't a lot of other options. Brookside, again – uh, had every conceivable service that you would expect from a full-service hospital. And it in, included a, a burn unit, which was an unusual service because you had a lot of industry in Richmond. Richmond is the story of the Kaiser shipyards and the surrounding industry because of the miles and miles of shoreline on the San Francisco Bay. And so there's a lot of industry. And so the hospital had a burn unit, um, uh, it, it just, it had a cancer center. It was at the, even at the time of its closing in 2015, it was the only hospital serving this area that was specialized in stroke care, um, and, uh, to put stents in people's hearts and had a very highly regarded, even, even at the time that it was financially failing, had a very highly regarded uh, cancer center. And, and tell me a little bit about the population, uh, the physical area of the people it was serving. So you, it's in, located in Richmond, um, but it covers some other nearby cities as well, right? Yeah, so it's in, it's in, this is the East Bay, the San Francisco Bay area. This is an area that's a little bit north of Berkeley, California. So it's also connected, Richmond is also connected to the west to Marin County. So there's a bridge right in Richmond called the Richmond San Rafael bridge that goes from Richmond to the, to San Rafael, which is in Marin County. So it is a, um, primarily working class, but also depending upon the city, um, both blue collar and white collar communities, there's bedroom communities that are higher income. Um, the, Ethnic makeup of the, of this area has changed considerably over the last 50 or 60 years. Um, Richmond, because of the war effort, um, went from primarily a white community in the early 40s and before and uh, had a huge influx of African Americans from the South uh, as a result of the war effort and the Kaiser shipyards and had a, a huge population increase, as I mentioned, from 20 to 120,000 residents. And uh, uh, during a, much of that period, the community was a majority African-American community. Um, the high school I went to in downtown Richmond was 60% African-American during the time I was there in the 70s. You know, Richmond, the way you've described it, and you said it's close to Marin County, right north of San Francisco, those two areas couldn't be any more different in terms of the economic and racial makeup, right? You drive a couple of miles west over that bridge, and you're in a remarkably different city. Exactly. Yeah, Marin County is, I think, the highest per capita income 
county in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the highest in the state of California. And Richmond and the adjacent cities of San Pablo are some of the lowest income per capita of cities in the state of California. In fact, I would argue that Marin County is one of the highest per capita cities in all of the country. I mean, given right. the tech boom and, and all the money that flows into the Bay Area um, writ large. Marin is effectively a white suburb of those making good incomes who work in San Francisco or even in the South Bay. Um, it is effectively a bedroom community for high-income professionals. Mm. Richmond is a working-class, pro-labor, democratic community. Um, so let's jump forward a few years or decades, right? And now you're involved in some of these issues. You're on the board, and you start getting involved with Brookside. Tell me a little bit about how your involvement started. Well, as I mentioned, the, the board of the hospital is actually an elected board. So you actually were uh, elected to this board. But because of a vacancy, I was recruited by a local <clears throat> county supervisor who also was from Richmond who cared about this hospital and took it upon himself, even though it wasn't in the county's jurisdiction, uh, because the county serves a similar type of population wanted to work to keep this hospital open. So so when you came in, the hospital was already in trouble? Yes. Yes. So when I got involved in the hospital. And when was that? Uh, it was in, uh, it was about mid-2007. Okay. So the hospital started s- sustaining financial losses and and it's and uh, and I can explain why, but the hospital started to sustain significant financial losses in about 2004. And uh, at that time, um, what had occurred in the community, I uh, relate very similarly to what occurred in around the public school system. You started to see the expansion of options to public schools. You started mm-hmm. to see the private school, uh, uh, the, the proliferation of private schools. And uh, you even started to see the beginning of charter schools. And what happened is people who had choices um, started making other choices. So if you, if you could afford to go to a private school, in many cases, you left the public school system. Well, very much Um, a similar thing happened to this hospital. As Kaiser uh, built a new hospital in Richmond uh, that's there today, um, employers and people who were middle class um, started to gravitate away from Doctors Medical Center or Brookside and started to go to Kaiser Mm. to the point that Kaiser absorbed a good portion of the middle class um, of this area to where they ended up. And I think, well, to this day, they probably have more, but at that time ended up with almost 70% of the market was going to Kaiser and what it left at doctor's medical center 
were those who had uh, less options. They either were underemployed or were not getting health care through employment or they were immigrants. So why couldn't they just go to Kaiser? If I'm Kaiser and I say, hey, listen, I've opened up. You guys can come here. What's what's the what's the public policy problem with, with having Kaiser there? There wasn't a public policy problem. There was a uh, cost problem. Mm-hmm. It was really the the cost of being a Kaiser member versus um, not having substantive income to be able to pay for healthcare. And that's really the key with with Brookside, right? I mean, you could be Medicare or Medi-Cal and still get access quality medical care and you couldn't at Kaiser. Kaiser, you need to be a member of the Kaiser system. You need to join the Kaiser healthcare system. You need to pay monthly, uh, monthly, uh, uh, fees to Kaiser. If you can't afford healthcare, you end up on Medi-Cal and Medicare and, um, Medi-Cal and Medicare do not pay enough for the cost of the services that uh, that uh, that one gets to cover the cost of the care. So the real story the, at, at, at Doctors Medical Center, right? So Kaiser was not, uh, focus is on its membership. Uh, Kaiser is not a public hospital. Kaiser is a private nonprofit hospital. No, so I'm just, I'm just trying to, to, to be clear on this, right? So, Kaiser charges, if I don't have enough money to pay for Kaiser services, I'm on Medicare, Medi-Cal, that will not cover the cost of services at Kaiser in Richmond, let's say. Or anywhere. Or anywhere. (laughs) Okay. So what happened at Brookside is that over the years, as we lost insured clients, insured patients, Hmm who had private health insurance that that would provide a profit margin to the hospital, those patients started to make other choices. And in many cases, those, those, the people that were making those choices tended to be um, primarily white and higher income. Um, And what it left as a, patient base at Brookside were primarily minority and Medi-Cal and Medicare covered or uninsured covered client base. So by the time um, the 2000s hit, um, the hospital had almost uh, 90% of its patient mix was either Medi-Cal, Medicare, or uninsured. And mm. Medi-Cal and Medicare pay, on average, about 70 cents on the dollar. So you provide a dollar's worth of medical service, you're going to get 70 cents worth of reimbursement. Well, it doesn't take a rocket science to understand that you can't run a business, which in fact this was, where 90% of your revenue is less than the cost of providing the service. And that is really the story of this hospital. Um, The change in the payer mix ultimately created a structural deficit of approximately $20 million a year that made this hospital 
uh, as a standalone business entity unsustainable. And in 2004, a, a private entity called Tenant, which is a large healthcare system, came in and said, we think we can profitably operate this hospital. And so they changed the name from Brookside to Doctors Medical Center. And they made substantial investments in the facility and in the hospital and in the equipment. And they, what they were attempting to do was they were attempting to improve the payments. So they were trying to attract back uh, insured patients who would start to cover the cost of the care. Would start to cover uh, the cost of the care for those that Medicare and Medi-Cal, for instance. Exactly. You needed you effectively needed to subsidize the Medi-Cal Medicare patients by bringing in privately insured patients that that the cost of of the uh, reimbursement through private insurance would would mm-hmm. pr- would subsidize the medical right. medical that's loss. really the crux right there right that's as exactly. those folks started leaving um, th- that money started going away and it was effectively an insurance program right it was uh, and and without exactly. without just like a, a healthy individual subsidizes the larger healthy population subsidizes the smaller unhealthy population when it comes to medical insurance you had a, a a larger number of people who could afford medical care subsidizing a smaller, presumably, number of people that couldn't afford medical care. And as that number of people start to leave, it became more difficult for Brookside to be able to afford care, for, uh, to provide care for, for uh, the uninsured or underinsured. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 the, and the percentage of uninsured or underinsured became the predominant payer mix of the hospital population. And then began your decade-long escapade to try to keep Brookside open, right? So when I got on the board in 2007, we started to explore um, lots of different ways that we could try to keep the hospital open and literally tried to pull every rabbit out of a hat we could. And in fact, we think we did over the 10 years I was on the board to keep the hospital open. The reality is it could very well have closed in 2006 and we kept it open uh, till 2015 with uh, short one time in many cases uh, fixes that would keep the hospital open. In some cases it's six months at a time. Can you give me some Uh, of the greatest hits of these fixes? I mean, I know there's, there's some, very interesting and innovative things you tried to do. You tried to work with, um, I think at one point you tried to work with San Quentin State Prison to provide medical care. You tried to do a number. You tried to do a number of things. Yeah, well, we did lots of things, but yes, we did everything we could think of. So we brought in a national hospital turnaround consulting team. We changed uh, and implemented some quick fix initiatives related to billing and collections to improve our cash flow. Um, we, um, we changed some of our staffing levels, uh, both labor and non-labor levels. We applied to the state of California and got a $5 million of distressed hospital funding. We, um, we entered into a, uh, a, an agreement with the Department of Corrections to allow 
patients that needed hospitalization at San Quentin Prison. We effectively leased a top floor of the hospital. This is a eight-story hospital. We leased the top story of the hospital to San Quentin Prison, and they would bring patients over from San Quentin, and it actually was one of the more uh, profitable contracts that the hospital had. It was one of the few things the hospital did that provided on, ongoing uh, revenue. Mm. Um, did you feel like, uh, did you feel, how did you feel when, you, you know, you're kind of running around trying to do this, you're trying to do that over 10 years just to kind of keep this hospital afloat that's serving lower income folks. Meanwhile, Kaiser is kind of leeching off the middle, not leeching off is maybe a negative term, but kind of right. kind of siphoning off these medical class, middle class uh, patients in the Richmond area. I mean, how did you feel? Does it make you angry? Did it make you agitated? I mean, I can, yeah, well, I'm was, getting frustrated fr listening to it. Yeah, it was frustrating because everybody acknowledged the role that this hospital played. Everybody acknowledged how important this hospital was to the community. But when it really came time to step up and do what was needed to keep this hospital open, whether it was to make us part of a larger system, whether it was to give us ongoing funding, uh, to subsidize us, to, to continue to serve this population. At the end of the day, everybody failed. Um, the different health systems that gave us money, Kaiser gave us money for, for uh, three years. Kaiser gave us uh, $12 million um, over a three-year period, oh, and then they stopped. Yeah. Actually, I'm sorry. They gave us four million over a three-year period, and twelve million. John Muir, uh, which is a uh, in a wealthy part of this county, gave us a million a year for three years. Um, what? Why did Kaiser give you? Why did Kaiser give you money? Isn't that working against their interests? No, because what Kaiser was worried about. This was probably one of my biggest frustrations, and uh, I'm a Kaiser member myself now, and. Uh, I respect their business model. It's very effective. But at the end of the day, um, Kaiser uh, was willing to absorb the impact on their own system um, as opposed to either making us part of or even share services with us. We tried. Um, we told them, we said, look, when we close, the emergency room that right now sees 40,000 patients a year, which is about 100 patients a day, who have no or very little insurance, are going to your emergency room in Richmond. So you're going to take a very small emergency room at Kaiser in Richmond, and you're going to add 100 uninsured or underinsured patients to your emergency room. That is what got us $12 million dollars. For. Uh, okay. So they were like, look, we'll take everybody else. We just don't want the emergency room lower income patients. You can handle that. It was an insurance policy by Kaiser. But didn't they know that just kind of subsidizing you in that way wouldn't work? I mean, that Brookside couldn't just function as a standalone emergency room hospital or was unable, was not allowed to function in that way? I think they were hoping that we would find uh, other ways of sustaining the hospital and that they were serving as really a bridge to a longer-term solution. 
But the problem was that they weren't willing to be part of the longer-term solution. Mm. We felt we could actually merge our our hospital with them, um, that we could actually go to the site that they're at and share services and share equipment and all. We came up with all kinds of ideas. They never took it seriously. They never really engaged us in real conversations about what it would take to keep this hospital alive. Um, but taxpayers, were they not interested in, in supporting the, the hospital? Well, as I mentioned, we did pass a tax with 84% support in 2004. Right. And then one of the things that I did with Supervisor Joya when I got on the board was we passed, we went back to the voters. And we went back to the voters in 2011 and we actually passed another parcel tax, this time $47 per, per parcel. Uh, we got 74% support, and it raised another $5.1 million a year. So we now had two tax measures that effectively raised us about $10 million a year. But it was still not adequate to address our deficit. And the problem is, and you may ask, well, why didn't you try to pass a parcel tax that would cover your deficit? Yeah, well, Eric. Why didn't you? <laughs> well, because our polling showed we couldn't pass it. Mm. The, the, that amount, is, it was, was just too much for the taxpayers to bear, essentially. Exactly. And the taxpayers, over time, and this bore out, <clears throat> over time saw that this hospital was not sustainable. And as they heard the, the, the story of the hospital, because we were in the paper pretty regularly, when you heard the story of the hospital's struggles, I think over time the voters started to realize and understand most of the voters by this time were no longer using the hospital. So over time, I think out of people's own self-interest, to be honest, People started to realize that uh, supporting the hospital was not in their best interest as they were no longer using it. <clears throat> and in fact, before we closed, because I felt, I knew it by 2014 that we were most likely going to close because we had done so many different things to keep the hospital open and still could not get over the hump. We actually did put another measure on the ballot. Um, we put a, a measure on the ballot to cover the full operating deficit of $20 million. Um, it required a two-thirds vote to pass, and it got 52% of the support. So we went from 84% support in 2004 to 72% in 2011 to 52% in 2014. So we still have majority support. So I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to be too critical, which is, you know, uh, used to be that if you had majority support, you could pass a tax, but with prop 13 in California, no. you need two thirds, which mean only a third of the voters can kill a tax measure. So we had majority support, but not sufficient to pass the new tax. I imagine if some weren't, someone were to look into the people that were not interested in paying higher taxes to support DMC, that there would be a significant overlap with the same 
kinds of people that were leaving or had left DMC with the same kind of economic a group of people, middle class, upper middle class, that had left DMC to go to Kaiser or these other hospitals. Right. Right. Because right. the people that are your patient mix or your patient population at DMC increasingly also are, you know, pay less in taxes or less engaged politically or not even asked to, to, to kind of right. engage in this way. Right. And so, you know, we became a cause, but we came a cause without a solution. And, uh, we, we've, we made it very clear. We hired a national firm to go talk to every healthcare system in the country that we could talk to. We talked to UCSF. We talked to Stanford. We uh, approached the county. We approached Kaiser. And we said, we need to be part of a larger system. We're serving a role in this community that you don't want to serve. We're serving a population you don't want to serve because of the, because of the uh, inability to cover your costs subsidize us, make us part of something larger. That's the only way we're going to stay in business. And nobody took us up on it. We, we spent, you know, uh, not a lot of money, but as I said, we spent a considerable amount of time talking to folks. At the very end, we were basically pleading for high wealth individuals to try to save us. We yeah, what about, what about that? Part. I mean, you, you know, you're right across the bridge from some of the wealthiest people on the planet. I mean, the concentration of wealth in, in the Bay Area is astounding. Um, and, and all these corporations exist there with, with you know, I mean, Apple's cash hoard is the GDP of several dozen countries combined. Exactly. So it, it, I know you approached some of these folks. What was the response from some of these high net worth individuals? Um, if they were hospital systems, they would look at our books and go, you have a $20 million structural deficit. We're no, we have no interest in, in uh, acquiring you or operating you or uh, uh, affiliating with you. The high wealth individuals just never responded. We reached out to Mark Zuckerberg, who had given millions of dollars to um, to the Children's Hospital or to uh, San Francisco General. Um, we've reached out to Mark Benioff, who's given, I think, $100 million to the Children's Hospital in San Francisco, and we got no response. And not even um, an endowment, right? I mean, like so many of these individuals endow academic institutions, and right. that endowment, for instance, could, could cover at least part of a deficit, right? So it wouldn't have to be a repeat yeah. payment. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so at the end of the day... Um, uh, nobody was going to save this hospital. The voters weren't going to save it. High wealth individuals weren't going to save it. Other healthcare systems weren't going to save it. Um, the state legislature, who we had approached, didn't have the resources to save it. Um, we got we got you know one time money from the state. A bill was carried by a local state senator. It got us three million dollars one time. You know. Like I said, every a lot of people tried, but it was all um, too little, too late. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you know, you're, you're looking for one-time solutions for what seems to be a broader structural problem, and right. that's hard. Well, what you're seeing nationally is you're seeing that standalone public hospitals are closing every day. Um, they cannot afford. Um, they cannot afford to stay open um, as healthcare has changed. Um, they're they're just becoming a thing of the past. 
Uh, in some communities, it's not as big a deal because there's so many other options around. The problem with this hospital is the emergency room specifically was really um, the, the emergency room for 250,000 people. Uh, was much larger than any other emergency room in the area. There's only one other, which was the Kaiser Emergency Room. This area only had, at the time we were open, only had 40 emergency room beds. We were 25 of them. So with our closure, you only had 15 emergency room beds serving 250,000 people. Um, Kaiser expanded when we closed and added 10 so the entire region went from 40 to 25, and that's where it is today. Yeah. But because, and here's the real, I think, uh, biggest current problem, is because of the impact the closure of our hospital and emergency room had on Kaiser in Richmond, their emergency room is so impacted now with our uh, former patients that they many times have to go on diversion, meaning that they can't take ambulances because they're too overloaded. And they're sending them to other emergency rooms that in many cases are 20 or 30 minutes away that are uh, further uh, burdened by the fact that the freeways in this area of the Bay Area are... Uh, and that can be the difference been. between life and death? Well, it has been the difference between life and death. And the lack of uh, adequate emergency care at the end of the day, it, you know, the, the loss of this hospital is less of a story of the loss of the hospital beds. It's more of a story of the loss of the emergency room. And the loss of an emergency room to this day is uh, has made this area... Uh, definitively known as a healthcare desert. Uh, it is a large uh, population in a very successful region of the state and a very successful area of the country, if not the world, with uh, inadequate healthcare services to serve those in the most need. And that's tragic. Mm -hmm. And I feel good about the 10 years I spent keeping the hospital open. I feel horrible about the year I spent or six months I spent having to close the hospital, especially with my family's history uh, and, the, and the history of this hospital in this community for so long. But at, at the end of the day, I'm proud of the fact of what I did to, you know, to save lives. To this day, we have people going, why am I still paying uh, – a property tax, and in some cases they are. Why are we still paying property taxes for a hospital that's closed? The real reason is we're paying off debt, right? We incurred debt to keep the hospital open for a decade, mm -hmm. and what people are paying now is they're paying off that debt. Yeah. And when they say, why am I paying taxes, I say, look, you saved lives for 10 years because we were able to keep this hospital open for a decade, that's why you're paying taxes now. Yeah. And people pretty much stop talking after, yeah. I, after I say that to them. As part of our closure plan, since we were a public entity, we needed to maximize the, uh, the assets that we had remaining to, for the public because we still needed to pay off pensions of our employees at 
at our height, we had over a thousand employees. Um, we wanted to make sure that all of our former employees remained whole. And so we sold the, the property. We sold the hospital on the property it sat on for $13.5 million to an adjacent property owner. Well, it just so happens that that adjacent property owner is a Indian uh, casino called the Lytton Indian Casino, literally right next to this hospital. And they needed additional uh, space primarily at this time for parking. And they paid us $13.5 million for the property. Uh, we took that $13.5 million and, as I said, um, made sure that our employees were kept whole and that, um, that uh, you know, the people weren't left holding the bag mm. who had committed to that hospital yeah. for so many years. And so the hospital site at this point is, is a, effectively a parking lot that uh, obviously is tragic to see. It may eventually evolve into there's discussion of it turning it into retail and maybe a hotel. And, but the hospital itself has was torn down by the uh, Indian tribe, and uh, it no longer exists except in pictures and memories. Wow. Um, God, that's sad to hear. Yeah. And there now that those patients that used to go to the DM, DMC or Brookside emergency room, not only do they have to travel far away, but my understanding is that uh, once they get there, they're not part of the Kaiser system or whatever system the other hospital's in. And sure, the hospital has to see them. They're obliged to see an emergency room patient, but they charge them an exorbitant amount for medical care, which further burdens an already low-income patient. Right. Yes, or they do uh, the affectionate term of we treat them and street them. We wow. give them minimal amount of services because we're required to by law, but we're not going to keep them in our system because we know we're not going to get paid. So we send them on their way. We either just send them out to the street or we send them to the county or we send them somewhere else, but we do not keep them within our system. And so um, the, the tragedy of this, and, and there are a lot of anecdotal stories, you know, that I hear regularly, um, the population that we served is just further struggling. And you put it in the context of the pandemic, you put it in the context of the economy and the, you know, the impact of the pandemic on the economy and on mm -hmm. people who already, uh, who already uh, do not have resources, it's a tragedy. And, um, and uh, I think a lot of these people are ending up, um, are ending up on the streets. Um, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a great story. It's not, it's not what uh, living in this country is supposed to be like. Uh, What's interesting to me is like to bring it back to the beginning of our story, right? With your dad is that your dad, he wasn't a Facebook founder or he wasn't a multi-billionaire. He was successful, but he worked with other business people to start this hospital. And that was something that was doable. And that was something that was seen as, uh, you know, something that you do when you care about your community. And here exactly. you are today. And the idea how we think about philanthropy and community service is so different that uh, 
that, you know, starting a hospital is just like an impossible task. Even keeping one open is an impossible task. Right. And, and sort of the breakdown of our, you know, community sense of community spirit and the, and, and, and the, you know, the community really taking it upon themselves to take care of themselves, the breakdown of that, um, and, you know, exacerbated by inequality and exacerbated by, um, other, you know, all the, all the other, uh, issues that divide us as a, as a country, um, has only made the story of the hospital one that you're likely not to see again, as far as, you know, the community coming together and, solving the healthcare uh, demand in, in, in a community that just didn't have it at the time. And now everybody seems to be looking for somebody else um, to fix the problem, but they're not trying to fix it themselves. Um, and, you know, what I feel good about is, uh, you know, just in, in the time I spent working on this is somebody who, like I said, worked in government. I used to work in the state legislature. I, uh, I, I run my own consulting firm. Uh, at the end of the day, this was a business. I knew how to run a business. Um, it, uh, it, it, it was satisfying to continue the legacy of my family in terms of supporting this community around its health care. Uh, I felt good that we did keep the hospital open for a decade because I think we saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we just couldn't sustain it uh, on our own. And uh, so it's a, a, a feel-good story in many ways that ended tragically. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a sad story, but, but I also want to end the podcast on a somewhat positive note. What yeah. lessons can somebody who is experiencing, maybe they're a physician, a nurse, or a, a, in management, or on the board of a a hospital district or something akin to that. What, what, you know, what would you tell them if, if they're dealing with this, especially now when public hospitals are so necessary to treat, you know, patients might be suffering from COVID or, or other illnesses. What, what would you tell them? What's a way out? You know, what should they be working on or thinking about? Well, I mean, this gets back to the whole national debate about healthcare and healthcare is a right in this community uh, uh, as opposed to an option. And frankly, at the end of the day, and I've had a lot of discussions about this, but at the end of the day, some kind of uh, single payer system that provides a minimum level of health care to everybody, uh, regardless of your ability to pay is, yeah. is the only, is the only way to guarantee, um, that the population that this hospital serve would, would continue to get reasonable health care. Um, the, uh, the, the, the evolution of health care systems in this country has not been to the benefit of those who, uh, who have less and are at the lower strata of, of the, of the uh, economic sure. cycle. And until we uh, raise the bar of what it means to, to, uh, to, to get health care in this country, um, I, I don't. I would never advise anybody to try to start a uh, a new standalone uh, uh, hospital. Um, it looks like that, they couldn't, even if they tried. No, they couldn't, and and the whole system is going in the opposite direction. 
the whole system is moving away from hospitals. The whole system and what the pandemic is doing is is uh, quickly evolving telehealth as the means uh, by which you get healthcare. I was on two health telehealth calls today um, uh, with Kaiser. Uh, specific to you can't go to the, you can't go to the hospital, but it's evolving mm-hmm. the technology, and the whole system is moving away from uh, hospitals because hospitals are very expensive entities to run. Right. And anybody you know that's been in a hospital, the first thing of anybody getting into a hospital is how fast can we get you out of it? Uh, and because it's so expensive to be there, and so the whole system's moving away from hospitalization. They're moving away from seeing people uh, physically and they're moving towards telehealth and it's cost driven. Um, and, but you know, when you, you talk about telehealth, uh, there's so many people in this community that they, they don't have internet. They don't have a computer. Right. They don't, they don't yeah. have the means yeah. to even get the services. Well, Eric, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast and sharing your story. It's an important story to be told especially now. And although it doesn't have, you know, a happy ending, I'm hoping that people who listen to this episode and hear your story will find some inspiration or some insight into, you know, the problem and maybe get involved either with, with their local hospital or a community health clinic or start advocating on policy issues with their elected representatives uh, because this problem with the pandemic, I think is only going to get worse. So thanks for taking so much time out of your day to, to join us for this podcast. Sure. Appreciate and, it. And well, thank you for doing, uh, doing this podcast and for focusing on these issues and, and, and getting our story yeah. out. I very much appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And thanks also for all the work that you continue to do and did. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take right. care, Eric. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. thanks again for listening to another episode of Unfair Nation. As always, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. A big thank you to our supporters and friends and family who continue to offer both solicited and unsolicited constructive feedback and advice on our show. I welcome them both. Next week, tune in for our interview with Jamie Harrison, who is the Democratic frontrunner for Lindsey Graham's Senate seat in South Carolina. Until then, have a great week, and thanks for listening. Music